You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Wednesday, May 1st, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Bill Barr deftly sidestepped and parried the questions of the Senate as to his handling and characterization of the Mueller report. That description coming directly from Bill Barr's internal monologue. In fact, he sliced words as if he were a starving Russian peasant trying to make two potatoes last through winter. If you think I would suggest that Barr's linguistic soft shoe was actually a hodgepodge, indeed that is what I'm trying to suggest. Yeah, but I'm I'm trying to grapple with the word suggest. I mean... Oh, brother. One issue was Barr's pushback on the idea that Donald Trump told his counsel Don McGahn to get rid of... Muller. Much depended on the word fire. Did he mean to fire him? He never said fire him. We actually got a preview of this flammable bit of rhetoric a couple weeks ago when Trump's private attorney, Rudy Giuliani, trotted out the combustible defense. Fire's nice and clear. Fire is get rid of him. He shouldn't be special counsel. He shouldn't be special counsel means it's wrong that he's special counsel. It doesn't say any specific action. Well, then he changes it again and says, well, I, I, I thought that meant get rid of him. That's what he thought it meant. Well, okay. Jake, are you implying that the president meant he should set Robert Mueller aflame or to launch as with a rocket? I must have forgotten that part in Beckett where Henry II's advisors debate. Now, when he says, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? Is the king saying that someone should get rid of the priest or is he saying that someone should saddle the priest up so that in the future the king could said to have rid him? Hmm, unknowable. When Rudy said it, I thought it was a reach. Today, now that Barr's saying it, it might be an impeach. We will discuss all of that in the spiel. And no, I don't think it's going to lead to impeachment. But first, and speaking of that which is rid, we turn to the track, where a spate of deaths at a California racetrack has grabbed the headlines, which the racing industry does not want. After all, this Saturday is the Kentucky Derby, the first race in the Triple Crown. Racing expert and horseman extraordinaire Peter Thomas Fornatel is here. It's equine time. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com
The Kentucky Derby will be held on this Saturday. It is the time in the horse racing season where everyone focuses their attention and roots for three-year-olds, which would be as if the biggest event in the football season was rooting for high school freshmen. I'd say a three-year-old horse is about a 14-year-old person. <laughs> Smarter, actually, a little more mature. Joining me now is Peter Fornatel, who I talk horse racing with whenever I can. He is the host of the In the Money Players podcast. And we're going to talk not mostly actually about the Derby, but a series of tragedies at a big track in California, what it means for horse racing. Pete, thanks for coming by. It's always a pleasure. Very nice to be here in the Slate Studios for once. Usually yeah. we're in some place that serves alcohol. Right. You've been on our show three or four times because you're the author of like 17 books, but one <laughs> of them is, right, didn't you co-author a book with Chris Jericho or? <laughs> yes, Chris, our fellow Long Islander, um, at least by birth, really yeah. he's from Winnipeg, a pro wrestler, rock star, worked on that, worked on some books about 80s pop culture, uh -huh. drinking, yeah. and horse racing, yeah. of course. So this tells me that if you're an expert in horse gambling, you definitely have to have some other forms of income. <laughs> Very smart way of false. looking at yeah. it. Oh, 100% true. <laughs> okay. So what has been happening in Santa Anita Racetrack, which is, I don't know, you tell me, I would, I would think it's the most prominent racetrack on the West Coast, is a series of deaths. And death is not unknown in horse racing. It's a serious problem. But the death toll in just, um, a few, well, you tell me, just a few weeks is up to 23, is it? It was over the course of a couple of months, starting with their meet opening, which is the day after Christmas. Mm -hmm. It's been a very unfortunate situation that there's a few stories to tell from. When you're looking at horse racing, you are looking at a sport where, and this might sound cold to say, but there's no way to conduct a sport of racing without a certain amount of attrition. Something along the lines of one in a thousand racehorses is not going to make it. Now, part of this is just the nature of the horse themselves. They're not well designed in a sense. They will, even in a paddock, not being asked to race suffer accidents, right. a combination of how they're bred and, and designed and what their brains tell them to do. Right. They're, they, they're flight animals. Accidents happen. It's awful. But what's happened at Santa Anita over the course of the last few months has been very unusual. And from the people I've talked to, from the research I've done, I put it down to several factors, the main one of which is bad luck. Mm -hmm. uh, the weather has factored right, there into will it be, very much. There, there will be deaths in horse racing. I don't want to use the passive voice, and I don't want to say it has nothing to do with the traditions of horse racing. If the horses are, quote-unquote, badly designed, part of it is because they're designed to be thoroughbreds for this purpose, and it's maybe not the most adaptive way that natural selection would have chosen. That's stipulated. There would be a cluster of deaths. There can be a cluster of deaths, but this seems to be, even if you assume, okay, all the bad luck in the world hit at once, this seems to be way above that. And there is some causality, I think, when you look at the bigger picture of what's happened. or if, Causality, I, I'm not meaning to put blame on any one person, but mm -hmm. there, there are things beyond randomness at play here. Yeah. The weather being, I think, the biggest one. You have this racetrack and you have a very unusual situation out there this winter where they had an unusual amount of rain and an unusual amount of cold. Mm -hmm. You also had a new team at the beginning of the meet in charge of the racing surface. The longtime track superintendent was no longer there. So you had new people in charge of the track who weren't 
familiar with how to deal with it, didn't necessarily know all the ins and outs of it in a way that produced unsafe conditions. And you had a number of breakdowns both in the morning and in the afternoon. And that's where the story starts to change into one of crisis management and mismanagement of that crisis. Do you mean crisis management in terms of PR or in terms of letting the horses run when it became clear that something dangerous was happening? Really, the answer is both. On the first order, I feel like there were too many fatalities before it was taken to a super serious level by the racetrack. I mean, it seems like when you get to the entire amount of fatalities that were in the previous year's meet in the matter of six weeks or two months or whatever it was, probably more extreme measures should have been taken then. Instead... So in other words, when it seems like horses were dying at three times, four times, five times the sadly normal rate, that's when you intervene. You would, I would have liked to have seen something happen sooner than it did. People would be, I think, pleasantly surprised by how beloved these animals are by the people who take care of them every day. For some examples of that, you could check out the hashtag I am horse racing with some great stories about how important these animals are. They're not just a commodity to the people who work in racing, by and large. Of course, there's bad apples in any endeavor that you're in, but... I believe it has a future, and I believe this is a crisis that can be navigated past, but there have been some significant missteps to this point in handling it. Part of the Strana Group, who owns Santa Anita, part of their solving of the issue, quote-unquote, was to bring in PETA Mm -hmm. to help more or less consult a group whose avowed mission is to end horse racing, as it is the eating of animals and, and, and all that stuff. And that's when these other... Uh, rules came in about uh, race day medication and whip use, things that, while they may very well be worth considering, are not related at all to the spate of equine deaths in the morning and just sort of reminded me of the classic politician's trick of you don't like the conversation, okay, let's change the conversation. So you're sure medication had nothing to do with it? Well, I know Pete is against Lasix and other race day medications that can compromise a horse. Lasix had nothing to do mm-hmm. with these breakdowns. And, and even Stronic themselves, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say, okay, because this problem, we're going we're gonna to get rid of these race day medications. Meanwhile, they have these other tracks where they're not making any change. It was a, a yeah. strange crisis PR play. We could go into the weeds about other types of medication and whether or not they may have affected the, the breed as a whole, but that's a different... But it down- wouldn't just show up in one racetrack if that's the problem. I, yeah, I yeah. agree with that completely. Yeah. Okay, so what's happening now? They're racing three days instead of four there? Well, that has to do more with just the number of horses on hand, some of which have been shipped out, but the... the oh, in other words, the owners don't want to race there either. Well, I would say some owners don't want to race there and are coming up with other solutions. They have made some positive developments in terms of the track. They did bring back the old track super. The surface, by the accounts of people I talk to on the ground, is definitely playing much safer and slower mm-hmm. than the one that had the problems. Of course, you're still going to see breakdowns happen because that's what happens when you race horses, unfortunately. Right. But But if it's one in a thousand as opposed to what these numbers were. I think you'll see, I mean, I'd like to think that that racing would go on. It's very difficult. It's awful to sit here and talk about an acceptable amount of animal fatalities. But unfortunately, I mean, just as if you're talking about the pet industry, people are okay with a certain amount of attrition being associated, or you're talking about 
any enterprise where animals are going to be lost, I think that's sort of where we are. You have to make a decision. It's either an ethical practice or it's not. I've spent a lot of time around racehorses. I do believe it's an ethical practice. I believe they're bred to race and that racing should continue. At the same time, it's also incumbent upon the people who hold horse races to make the environment as safe as possible for the athletes, both equine and human, who are competing. Um, Was this an existential crisis for the industry? Was this really, really bad and people within the horse racing industry were extremely worried about it? I would say so. I mean, people in the horse racing industry, by and large, vast majority, love horses. And to see that type of attrition, it's simply unacceptable. And then you throw in sort of the PR problem. You talked about Santa Anita before as California's premier track. It's one of the premier tracks in America. It's hard to imagine American racing without Santa Anita. And it seems like they're at a position now where they're not too far away from that future being in question. And that's a real problem for everybody in horse racing. It seems to me that racing is fine like any other endeavor. It has good good years, bad years, good stories and bad stories. The two things going against racing are, in a sense, its biggest asset, which is its past. So the big reason it's the biggest asset is it's, it has this long, long history. But by the same token, if you compare the turnout, if you compare the crowds of races uh, in 2019 to what they were in 1919, it's no comparison. And the other thing, it's very hard for horse racing to become a niche when you have these huge outdoor cathedrals that hold over 100,000 people that are all but empty, you know, except one or two days a year. And that's always going to be a visual reminder where everyone says, huh, what happened to horse racing? And it can't, because of that, it can't comfortably recede into more of a niche place in a America's imagination. Yes, there's no doubt that racetracks these days are largely TV studios. But when you go there on the big days or you go to a place like Keeneland with its boutique meets in the spring and fall or Saratoga for the now expanded season up there, you can get a glimpse of what that was like back in the day. And it still can be pretty special. I think you have to accept the fact that most of the year it's going to be a TV studio But I think that's just part of the niche that racing is going to have to occupy as it moves forward. It's never going to be 25,000 people on a Monday at Belmont again, that's for sure. Yeah. All right, let's talk about this year's Kentucky Derby. And let's talk about another race that's going on that day, or specifically a horse that I'm interested in. <laughs> so there's a horse named Limousine Liberal, and I just it just caught my attention because it's one of those phrases that has gone in and out of favor. But um, how good a horse is Limousine Liberal, and you know what are its stances on affirmative action? No, uh, what race will it be in on uh, May 4th? Limousine Liberal will be assuming everything goes according to plan, competing once again in the Churchill Downs, a sprint race on the Derby undercard. Maybe not the most imaginatively named stakes race that they run at Churchill Downs. He's a really good, cool horse, and he, appropriately enough, loves the venue Churchill Downs. He is very tough horse. I think if he can come back to the form he's shown himself capable of, 
Very likely to be kind of a fun story, this horse with a weird name. It would be a triple, it would be back-to-back-to-back uh, to back to back for him. Exactly. So exactly. what do you think the of the people. name Limousine Liberal? I mean, imagine if there was a race where a Limousine Liberal could race against, I don't know, Climate Denier, <laughs> could race against Tax and Spend Elitist. <laughs> you will see a lot of political names. Horse racing, perhaps not surprisingly, uh-huh. is a lot of conservative horsemen. Not, not 100%, right. but I would say, by and large... The average horseman is probably somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun right. on most <laughs> issues. And I would assume that the name Limousine Liberal is some sort of weird tongue-in-cheek name. I was at a derby party two years ago when he won the race at Churchill Downs, rooting him in by name. Come on, liberal. Go on with this liberal. People looking at me like I had, you know, 17 heads. He's a cool horse, and he didn't run very well in the prep race for this at Keeneland, but I'm hoping he comes back into form and shows what he can do. And it certainly is, It's if, if one has time to look into the phrase limousine liberal and its origins, it's, it's a rabbit hole that's worth going down for a little while. Okay, so let's talk about the Derby. Uh, who Who's the favorite? Who do you like? What should we look out for? You've got so many different ways to go. Bob Baffert has three runners in there. The one I like the best is a horse called Game Winner. Another one I want to give a shout out to is a horse called Tacitus for the Hall of Fame trainer Bill Mott. People might remember Bill Mott from uh, the great Cigar, who, uh, of course, had that great winning streak, gosh, a long time ago now, mid-90s, right when I was getting into the game. Mott has a Hall of Fame resume. There's one hole on it. He's never won a derby. Tacitus gives him a chance to do that this year as well. There was this uh, trend of really good horses who people like you who want to see great horses run, they would get bought up right after success. And so we couldn't see them as a four-year-old, as a five-year-old. Is that still going on? It definitely is. Give us a sense of the economics of how much you could make running and winning and how much you could make as a sire. You can make a lot more money at the breeding shed. In American Pharaoh's case back in 2015, the stud rights were already sold before the Triple Crown. So the owner wasn't going to get that much more to, or any more necessarily to retire him. He was worth more as a racehorse. But typically speaking, you're going to be able to be worth tens of millions of dollars if you have those kind of credentials as a Kentucky Derby winner by being retired right away, not taking any attendant risk. It just makes sense economically, but the sport suffers when we don't get to see these great horses continue to run. It's just an unfortunate economic reality of the sport, both in the United States and also abroad. Peter Fornatel is the host of the In the Money Players podcast. And if you're in the New York area at Treadwell Park West, which is a uh, which is a Manhattan Hell's Kitchen venue. He'll be hosting a party with music and possibly tubed meats, <laughs> sausages, that sort of thing. Hey, Pete, thanks so much for coming by. Thank you. Kentucky Derby Day will be a lot of fun at Treadwell Park. Would love to talk to some just listeners. Oh, God. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com
And now the spiel. The official name of the Mueller report is the final report of the special counsel into Donald Trump, Russia, and collusion. Yet, it might be the final report. Doesn't seem to be the final word. Nor was it the first word. Attorney General William Barr made sure of that. He was before the Senate Judiciary Committee today taking questions. But let us recap some of the timeline about what we, the public, got to know about the Mueller report. So the first thing is, Mueller puts out the report. Well, he doesn't put it out. He gives it to Barr. And then Barr summarizes the report. Barr says the summary of the report wasn't a summary. I could go into more details, but so could have Barr because he wrote a summary. Three days later, Robert Mueller writes to Barr and says, hey, that summary you gave of my report wasn't what my report said. A few days after that, Congress asks Barr, hey, by the way, do you know if Bob Mueller liked your summary of the report? And of course, he did the whole, it wasn't a summary, sir. It was more of a telescopic compendium, if you will, not a wholesale abridgment. Okay, 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 Congress says again. But do you, do you, Bill Barr, know what Bob Mueller thinks about whatever you want to call that four-page letter you put out? Here is Representative Chris Van Holling asking that very question. Did, did Bob Mueller support your conclusion? I don't know whether Bob Mueller supported my conclusion. And the next day, Congressman Charlie Crist asked Barr a similar question. Reports have emerged recently, uh, General, that members of the special... Okay, I got to stop. I'm sorry. I know I'm here to provide clarity and to give you a timeline, and I risk killing the momentum, but he's not a general. You don't call the guy general. He's an attorney general. An attorney at law is not an at law. He is an attorney at law, and this guy is an attorney general, is an attorney for the general public. This is called a post-positive adjective, like you wouldn't call a notary public a public. You'd call him a notary. You wouldn't call a son of a bitch a bitch. You'd call him a son. Which reminds me, let's get back to Bill Barr, and this is Charlie Crist asking the question. Reports have emerged recently, uh, General, that members of the special counsel's team are frustrated at some level with the limited information included in your March 24th letter, uh, that it does not adequately or accurately necessarily portray the report's findings. Do you know what they're referencing with that? No, I don't. Well, he should have, because, as has been documented, he got a letter from Mueller saying, Bilbala, baby, it's Babala, what are you doing to me? That letter from Mueller to Barr says in part, the summary letter <laughs> the department sent to Congress and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24th did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office work and conclusions. There is now public confusion about critical aspects of the results of our investigation. This threatens to undermine a central purpose for which the department appointed the special counsel to assure full public confidence in the outcome of the investigations. On the front page of today's New York Times, this letter was revealed. The letter where Mueller expressed frustration to Bill Barr with the Barr summary of the Mueller report. All right, so you got that prologue, Barr denying twice that he knew what Mueller thought of his summary. Here now we go to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse questioning Barr today. At some point you knew that the Mueller letter was going to become public and 
That was probably yesterday. I think so. Okay. Uh, when did you decide to make that letter available to us in Congress? This morning. Um, would you concede that you had an opportunity to make this letter public on April 4th when Representative Christ asked you a very related question? Uh, I don't know what you mean by related question. It seems to me it'd be a very different question. I can't even follow that down the road. That, I mean, boy, that's a masterful hair splitting. But sir, isn't a related question by definition different or else it would be the same question. I'm related to my cousin, but I'm also different from my cousin because if I weren't, I would be my cousin. Now this hair splitting, which really is the right term, also characterized the attorney general's defense of Donald Trump on the charge of obstruction. At issue was, did the president tell Don McGahn to get rid of Mueller? Here was Barr's answer to Senator Dianne Feinstein's question. And there is a distinction between saying to someone, go fire him, go fire Mueller, and saying, have him removed based on conflict. And later, Senator Amy Klobuchar came back to the idea that Trump asked McGahn to get rid of Mueller, and Barr answered, well, no, it's not about getting rid of, it's about firing. In fact, the president's focus on the fact that I never told you to fire McGahn. Did I ever say fire? I never told you to fire McGahn. Seems to me like a terrible argument. Think about what he's saying. Removal, if the guy were to be removed, well, that means the guy's to be replaced. But if we were to say he's fired, it means you don't replace him. I get it. Like last year, the Jets fired their head coach. And so I guess this year, the players will be going out onto the field pretty directionless, maybe making up plays in the huddle. No, no, they actually fired the head coach. And guess what? They hired a new head coach. GE fired a CEO and then they hired a new CEO. Remember the Beatles and Pete Best? Remember they fired Pete Best and then went on to become the most successful pop band in the world without a drummer? No! They hired Ringo Starr. This distinction between firing and getting rid of, it's just being made up by the people defending Trump. Or in the case of Barr, the guy who swore on a constitution that he'd defend it. And the craziest thing about all of this is that you're fired is Trump's catchphrase. This would be like if The Rock were arguing before Congress, I don't know, perhaps there is an olfactory deficit interfering with your understanding of that which is cooking. Or if Gary Coleman sent out a phalanx of lawyers to argue, you know, wondering what Willis is talking about is substantively different from requesting Willis to clarify his thesis. And it's doubly, or by now I guess we're at triply odd, for the president to argue that to get rid of or to replace is different from fired. Because this is the president who said this. In this case, Omarosa has to go. You're fired. To Omarosa, and then Omarosa came back three times. If firing is indeed permanent, per his interpretation, How'd she get on The Apprentice three times and then in the White House once? This is just one of the many, many thin, thin arguments that are being trotted out in defense of Donald Trump. And let's also note, the Attorney General's job is not to defend Donald Trump. I actually believe that the quality of the argument, getting into the differences between he should be replaced and he should be fired and he has to go, the quality of that argument 
isn't the important thing. The important thing as regards Trump's strategy is not the logic of the argument, but the vociferousness with which it is delivered and the steadfastness that its progenitors adhere to. I think that any answer delivered with brio and confidence and maybe indignation seems like it's bound to overwhelm our limited capacities to pick it apart, to think critically about it. The game now is impeachment, and even facially farcical defenses, I think, will be enough to stave off impeachment, given the background conditions. And the most frustrating thing about all of this is that, well, we have a president who obstructed justice. But the second most frustrating thing is that we have an attorney general who thinks he's being clever enough to escape accountability. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. When they sing The Body Electric, they are singing about bodies, not electricity. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. When she flies jet blue, she's on a jet, not on a blue. The gist. Fire in the hole. Wait, you mean you're replacing the hole? How do you replace a hole? How do you replace an absence with another absence? Weird. And here's this week's trivia question. It's racing inspired. And it's my favorite form of trivia question, an analogy. Here we go. Adios Butler is to Sir Barton as Brett Hanover is to who or what? Adios Butler is to Sir Barton as Brett Hanover is to you tell me. And you can find the answer to our trivia question by subscribing to our newsletter slate.com slash gist news. Oomperoo, depperoo, dupperoo, and thanks for listening.